scripture today is found in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go ahead to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, My father. And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, Here I am. Then he said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named the place the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Well, happy Canada Day. That's, uh, we, just to let you know, if this is your first time here, we follow this thing called the Revised Common Lectionary, which kind of takes us through about 80% of the Bible over a span of three years. Uh, if we follow uh, all four of the readings, each, each Sunday we kind of focus on one of the readings, and that happens to be the one that we are looking at this morning. And, um, uh, and as you can understand, uh, this is a tough passage. And it's one that, uh, but that's why I love preaching through the Revised Common Lectionary, because it forces me to, or forces us, into the parts of the Bible that we might be tempted to go, well, you know what, I know it's there, but it doesn't really mean that. Oh, let's just pretend, let's just move on to the next chapter. Um, uh, It's so easy to do that. Also, just to mention that after this uh, service, 
after the moving and the pizza, after the pizza and moving party, we'll also be doing two uh, seniors' services uh, in two homes in Richmond. So if anyone wants to come and join us, I'll be preaching on Kempville. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. Uh, actually, over in Kempville. Uh, so if you want to join us, uh, then you are more than welcome to. And as I told the team this morning, I'll be preaching on Hello Kitty there. So uh, if this is not your flavour, then we'll be preaching on Hello Kitty over at the <laughs> over at the seniors' home. So uh, yeah, let's just pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is it is good. It is true. Um, Lord, I thank you that somehow, sometimes it, it, bring, it forces us, or many times it forces us out of our complacency, um, out of our easy believism, out of um, yeah, trite answers, and that we're led into passages that maybe are a bit uh, more troublesome, but I truly believe that the, that the fruit and the yield is even more glorious as a result. And so I pray, Lord, that you would speak through your word. I pray that you would speak into our hearts, that we would know that we've been in the presence of Almighty God. In Jesus' name, amen. And after this uh, ser- ser- sermon, we'll then move into communion at, at the end of the service. It was uh, in the early to mid-2000s when I was a, a youth pastor and I was a, a sucker for folksy acoustic rewrites of old hymns. I loved them. I couldn't get enough of them. I used to listen to bands like Indelible Grace and Red Mountain Music and New York Hymns and, yeah, City Hymns. Anything that had hymns in it, I was listening to it. And I would, and each time I heard these songs on these hymns, they would serve as a foundation or a reminder of the truths that I held to. And there was this one writer that I particularly enjoyed. He was part of this album called Songs for Lent uh, that tracked the passion of the Christ through the 14 stations of the cross. It was extremely melancholy and it brought me into this place where I could enter into the Good Friday story in a way that no other worship album I'd heard had been able to. Anyways, one day I was... I I remember hearing that this particular songwriter who wrote on this album had left the faith And I think I read about it on the internet, Um, maybe Facebook, I'm not exactly sure. Now, these days I could tell you any number of influential people, um, writers or worship leaders who have deconstructed their faith. But in those days, it wasn't really something that we heard much about at all. So to have this musician, this musician whose music had encouraged me so much, to have him walk away from Christ troubled me. So somehow I found out his contact information, I reached out to him. I can't remember exactly word for word what he said, but he pointed to this passage in Genesis 22 as the reason for him losing faith in God. And the question that he asked, this isn't word for word, it went something like this. How could a God of love request Abraham to do something like this, to sacrifice his only son? And so I assume that his not being able to find out a a satisfactory answer to that very important question led him to walk away from the faith. Now, I wonder for you this morning, what issue or scripture or understanding of the Bible or what unanswered question is causing you to trip up in your faith? And this is a tough passage. There's no two ways about it. We have Abraham who's waited 
literally decades for this son, and now God is asking him to offer him up as a sacrifice. One writer, Scott Hosey, sums up, I think, how many of us feel as we read through Genesis 22. He says, Abraham asked no questions in Genesis 22. We ask a bevy of questions about Genesis 22. Abraham walked resolutely and without stumbling on his way to Mount Moriah. We walk hesitantly, tripping again and again over the multiple theological scandals we encounter as we try to follow Abraham. The language of Genesis is crisp and unswervingly direct. We cry out for caveats, for escape hatches, for insertions into the text that will explain God's request. And so as I was reading this story ready for this morning, I read so many commentaries trying to find that secret key that if we could insert it into the text would unlock some hidden meaning that explains everything. And if I found that key, then we could all walk away from this scripture, sighing, wiping our foreheads and going, that was a close one, but we're okay. But each commentary I read from men and women who were experts in their field, almost to a person, ended up with some kind of a stalemate. There was a point that they could explain up to, but then after that point, the mystery remained. And the unresolved questions still hung around. Hands up if you have any unresolved questions of faith that you have yet to have answered. Anyone? Okay, well here you can add another one to it. And so this morning, I I want to treat this passage with respect. I want to look at it from the various vantage points of the characters, of the main characters, starting with Abraham, then going to Isaac, and then to God, and then to us. And hopefully by the wrap-up of this teaching, we might be one or two steps closer to having our questions answered. Because I want us to walk away from here not being afraid of Scripture, but being willing to engage with it. But I also want to show my hand a little bit by saying that my central theme of this morning's sermon is this, that Genesis chapter 22 reveals God's love for me and you. Let's say that together. Genesis chapter 22 reveals God's love for me and you. I didn't hear you. Genesis chapter 22 reveals God's love for me and you. Now, I hope as I write this, I'm not being glib. Um, But having said that, let's dive in. Firstly, uh, Genesis chapter 22 is about Abraham. And the author makes that very clear straight away. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. We're not there yet. Let's just see. There it is. Yeah, good. Okay, it was a bit of a rush this morning. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, this is about Abraham. This is a test for Abraham with all that God knows about Abraham and all that God has called Abraham to do. God designs a personal test specifically for Abraham. Now, the question is, why does Abraham require a test? I mean, not everyone in Scripture is tested in such an explicit way. Um, There are lots of passages where maybe we would assume that God is testing someone. But here we are left in no doubt. It said word for word that after these things, God, what? Tested Abraham. Verse 1. And if nothing else, this verse challenges the assumption that people make that God won't give us anything more than we can handle. Hands up if you've heard, God won't give you more than you can handle. Hands up if you said God won't give you more than you can handle. Okay, I've said it. 
But this, t- this story takes that assumption right to the precipice edge and then, frankly, it pushes that assumption over. But prior to the words God tested Abraham, we have, three, we have these three telltale words after these things. And this short phrase is vital because it causes us to look back and to see why God is sending Abraham this particular test. Scott Hosey gives us this helpful summary. Um, He says, after what things? Presumably all that had gone on earlier in the Abraham cycle of stories in Genesis, chief among which are a bevy of stories detailing Abraham's failure of trust. Twice Abraham passed Sarah off as his sister because he feared for their lives, despite God's promise that nothing would happen to them until they had a son. Then there were those occasions when both Abraham and Sarah laughed at God's promise of a son being born to senior citizens like themselves. Because of this doubt, Abraham and Sarah sought a way around God's promise of the two of them producing a child by having Abraham rush God's plan through his liaison liaison that's such a such a commentary word through uh, having you know extramarital affair with Hagar in fact it was even worse than that because there was a power a huge power differential there and so and last week we saw part of this mess that came from this union uh, with Hagar in last week's teaching So we can start to understand why God might be questioning his decision to put all his eggs in the basket of Abraham. Cue the test. So we have this moment in Genesis 22 where God apparently leans into and emphasizes what it is he's asking Abraham to do. Okay, we can't say, well, you know, God was vague and he didn't really know what Abraham kind of interpreted he overinterpreted. We can't say that at all. Because what we read is this. Take your son, he said, your only son. Which only son? Isaac, whom you love. Okay, so four times he leans into the specificity of this. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. So Abraham is left with no question at all as to A, what God is asking him to do, and B, who God is referring to. So this was about Abraham, and it seems to me that Abraham has failed so many times that perhaps God is giving him this one last Hail Mary chance to reverse all of those failures. He's, you know, such as pimping out his wife twice, getting the maid pregnant, and then sending her out into the wilderness, ostensibly, you know, to die along with his other son. Uh, Was Abraham the right person for the task to create a people and a nation that would bless the world? Now, this doesn't yet explain the nature of the test, but at least we can start to uh, maybe understand exactly what was on the line. So this passage is about Abraham. But it's more about Abraham. It's just as much about Isaac as it is about Abraham. Verse 9, when they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar at the top, on, on top of the wood. Now, it's not explicit here, but it seems to me, and lots of the commentators agree, that Isaac was a willing participant in this. One writer, Victor Hamilton, explains, he says, it should not go unnoticed that Isaac makes no attempt to deter his father. He had asked, where are the sheep? But he does not ask, 
Why these ropes? If Abraham displays faith that obeys, then Isaac displays faith that, that cooperates. If Isaac was strong enough and big enough to carry wood for a sacrifice, maybe he was strong enough and big enough to resist or subdue his father. Now, Jewish historian Flavius Josephus says that Isaac was 25 at this, in this moment. And the Genesis Rabba, which is a Jewish text, ages him at 37 years old. So Isaac wasn't a little kid. So this story is about Isaac just as much as Abraham, that Isaac was, seems to have been a willing partner with his father in his own sacrifice. So this passage is about Abraham, this passage is about Isaac, but it's also about sin as much as it is about Abraham. Because the whole idea of the sacrificial system was to atone or to pay for sins that you had committed. The animal died in your place. And I love these words again from Scott Hosey that outlines the length to which God will go to root out sin in our lives. Scott says this, in short, this was a unique test for a unique figure in salvation history, i.e. don't expect God to ask you to do the same thing that he asked Abraham to do. It was also an event that foreshadowed the death of the beloved son on, as the way to, to seal the covenant. Yet we tend to resist the notion of an evil so deeply entrenched that it requires even God to go to dangerous and shocking lengths of sacrifice to root it out. Too often, we want our God to be tame and predictable, quietly resisting a God who is utterly surprising, a God whose grace always comes with blood on it. And I love this, and I'm challenged by it because I think of the sin that I exist, that I allow to exist in my mind, sins that come into my mind even now, sins that sometimes I nurture, and I assume that ultimately God's going to be okay with it. But this passage shows us how seriously God takes sin in our lives. And he knows exactly the lengths to which he will go and he will, he will take us. As Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 27, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. That's how far Jesus will go to make you holy. He did this. To present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that but holy and blameless. So the question is what lengths will God in his grace go to to free you and I from the deceitful allure of sin? To present you to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. So this passage is about sin. Now I want to talk about clues because there are some clues in this passage that, in, that, that Abraham and Isaac ultimately thought that things would end up okay. The first clue is in verse 5. It says, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham said, We will come back to you. Abraham and Isaac will come back to you, which means that Abraham knew that God would either raise Isaac from the dead or he would stay his hand, which is actually what happened. That's clue one. Clue, verse, clue number two that they uh, thought that everything would be okay is this, where, where God 
says, tells Abraham to go to the land of Moriah. This is in verse 2. And why this location is important is because we find out in 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1 that Solomon builds the temple to God on Mount Moriah, pretty much at this exact location. So this location is full of significance. And in fact, what's happening now with Isaac is a foreshadowing of the sacrificial system that will take place in future Jerusalem, which does not yet exist. Uh, and then that sacrificial system itself points towards Christ as his, and his final and ultimate sacrifice on the cross outside of the capital city, not far again from this very place. So that's a clue that things are going to be okay. And the final clue is in verse 7 and 8. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father, and he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. God will provide. God will provide provide even as God asked Abraham to do something that was unthinkable Abraham knew from God's character that he is the God who provides so those are three clues that help us to see that maybe they knew that things were going to be okay in the end now I don't know if this is helpful and I couldn't find the source but I remember hearing or reading someone who said this Could Genesis chapter 22 be about God telling Abraham what he is not like? Let me explain. Abraham lived in a world where child sacrifice was the norm. And before we um, lift up that as a barbaric practice and, you know, raise our hands in shock horror, just remember that in 2021, there were over 35,000 abortions in Ontario alone, according to the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada. So let's just keep that in mind. So Abraham lived in this world where child sacrifice was normal. And according to God, God detested child sacrifice, which he clearly states numerous times, including uh, 2 Kings 23.10 and Jeremiah 32.35. So what more impactful way to demonstrate to Abraham that he's not like these other gods than to bring him to the point of sacrifice and then to stop him and say, actually, that's not what I'm like. That moment, if this interpretation is true, that moment would be seared in Abraham's memory forever. Now, of course, this isn't a complete answer and uh, it still has its problems. But if it's true, then Abraham would go through the rest of his life with this powerful, powerful reminder that Yahweh is not like the other gods, that he does not require human sacrifice. Now, as we wrap up this morning's walk through a difficult passage, let me leave you with some encouragements. Number one is don't avoid the tough passages it's easy to glide past these passages it's tempted it's tempting to ghost these passages like an ex-girlfriend to pretend that they're not there to never answer the phone when they ring it's easy to do that but they are there they exist they are inspired by God and they are there for our teaching our rebuking our correcting and our training in righteousness so that the woman or the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. 
So if we ignore these passages, then we miss out on some of the correcting or the training that God has for us. There is a reason why God, in his wisdom and sovereignty, allowed Genesis 22 into the Bible. Let's not be like Thomas Jefferson, who simply cut out the parts of the Bible that he didn't like. Passages like Genesis 22, 1 through 14, will take us to a more profound insight into who God is, if we allow them. If we humbly sit before them, if we submit ourselves under their truth rather than forcing God's word to conform to our presuppositions or our wishes. Yes, there is a lot to be understood in this passage. Yes, we are tourists and we need a guide to explain and to show us what's going on. There are cultural interpretations to be taken into account. There is background knowledge that we need to seek. There are other passages that we need to cross-reference with it. It's hard going. But that's because passages like Genesis 22 is more like steak than a soup. If you want to eat something quickly, eat some soup. But if you want something that sustains you, that you can chew over, that stays with you long afterwards, that you repeat afterwards and you burp it up, then Genesis chapter 22 is a good passage. However, at the end of the day, even with all that information that might, might make Genesis 22 more understandable, at the end of the day, we still are left with the image of God testing Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his son or at least to be willing to. But sometimes, friends, it's as, we, it's as we allow these passages to gaze into our souls that, that they can reveal something about God's nature and our nature that we need to rediscover, that we need to recapture, that we've allowed perhaps to slide, that we've made a God up of our own imagining. We realize that perhaps we've created a domesticated God, a tame God who conforms to our standards, who looks like us and sounds like us and votes like us and processes like us. But is that our God? For my thoughts are not your thoughts. That's a categorical statement. My ways are not your ways. That's a categorical statement. This is the Lord's declaration for as heaven is higher than earth so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts Isaiah 55 verse 8 and 9 so let's engage with the hard passages and more importantly let's allow the hard passages to engage with us when you encounter mystery don't plug your ears and hurry on because you'll be missing out that's the first takeaway don't avoid the tough passages the second takeaway is this jesus is your interpretive lens in other words allow the passages that speak clearly to illuminate the passages that are a little more murky or a little more hard to understand and jesus is the ultimate interpretive lens for understanding the bible as Luke 24, 27 says, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. On the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection, Jesus took these two disciples on a survey of the Old Testament, going through scripture after scripture after scripture about how this passage related to him and how that passage pointed to him. Do you think perhaps that maybe Genesis chapter 22, 1 through 14 might have been included in this incredible lecture? And I would suggest maybe so. 
Scripture also shows us that Jesus himself tells us everything that, everything that we need to know about God. Then beginning, or sorry, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. That's the God of Genesis 22, dwells bodily in Christ. Colossians 2 verse 9, and then again, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on heaven, things in, on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Colossians 1.19. So we look at Jesus, we see God. We look at Jesus, we see God. We want to know what God looks like, we look at Jesus. So in summary, if we want to faithfully engage with Old Testament passages like Genesis 22, 1 through 14, then we need to allow them to wrestle us. Just like Jacob wrestled the angel. Don't avoid them. Instead, open your Bible, put your fists up and get involved. And we do that by allowing the light of Jesus to illuminate them for us. Because the Old Testament is all about Jesus. And Jesus is the entirety of God squeezed into a five foot something Jew. God with skin on. And so if God's word is a lamp for my feet and light to my path. And sometimes there are parts of the Bible that seem rather dark, rather dim. Then Jesus is a lamp for the mysteries of the Bible and a light for the less well understood parts of the Bible. That hymn writer that I talked about at the beginning who allowed Genesis 22 to lead him away from faith. Well, that's his story. But I want to introduce you to Glenn Scrivener who has a bit of a different perspective on this chapter he says this, I love Genesis 22. It's perhaps my favorite chapter in all the Bible. I don't want to get out the scissors. I want to get out the magnifying glass because if we train our eyes to see what's there, this chapter becomes not a barrier to faith, but an almighty boost. And then Glenn writes this, picture baby Isaac lying in Abraham's arms. What do you have? You have the hope of the world. No Isaac, no Israel, no Israel, no Christ, no Christ, no salvation. So whatever you do, Abraham, don't drop him. And then we read Genesis 22. Take your only son, your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Glenn continues, I was once teaching this story to teenagers, sketching the picture layer by layer. Isaac is the only beloved son, the hope of the world, the source of all blessing. He's trudging up the hill with wood on his back. Does that remind you of anything? It's a hill near Jerusalem. Does that ring any bells? Suddenly, it was as if someone electrocuted a girl in the front row in a good way. She started thumping her friend next to her, really thumping her, a bit like Wendy thumped me last week or a couple of weeks ago when I told her that lie about Karen, okay? Like that. Her friend was thumping her with the kind of violence born of pure joy. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's totally Jesus. That essentially is why the Bible was written. It was written to make us say, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's totally Jesus. End quote. Genesis chapter 22 reveals God's love for me and you. 
And so with Genesis 22 looming in the background, we fast forward to Romans where we see instead of Father Abraham, we see Father God. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? And then we look at 1 John three sixteen, where instead of Isaac, we see Jesus. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. On Mount Moriah, God let Abraham off the hook. But on Calvary, God did not let himself off the hook. Ultimately, Isaac was released from the altar of sacrifice. But Jesus, he drank every drop from that cup of suffering on the cross. And he did it for us. He did it for me. And he did it for you, whether you care about him or not. God provided the ram for Isaac and Abraham, but Jesus himself was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Genesis 22 has the gospel painted all over it. It points to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus taking our place and our suffering and instead gifting us with eternal life. And another of our lectionary readings this morning says, for the wages of sin is death. But, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6, 23. Isaac needed the ram. Without the ram, he was screwed. And we need the lamb. Jesus took our death that we had rightfully earned because of our sin, and he gifted us eternal life. And in doing so, God the Father and God the Son fulfilled Abraham's words to Isaac as they walked towards Mount Moriah. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. It's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's totally Jesus. Jesus.